This episode of BZ Listening is with Curtis Eller, an artist that I typically describe as an undiscovered national treasure. I discovered Curtis in the summer of 2009 when he opened for the Squirrel Nut Zippers in New York City. I don't remember a thing about them, but I'll never forget how Curtis captivated me. His performance involved a fair amount of high kicks, twirling, intimate storytelling, some light yodeling, and absolutely no recognition of the fourth wall. See, not only will Curtis go out into the crowd, but he always makes an effort to connect with his audience. I mean, there's no such thing as a heckler at a Curtis Eller show. I've witnessed on several occasions that he'll gladly yield the floor to an audience member's drunken aside and then seamlessly weave it right back into the show. So this interview was recorded back in 2014, shortly before he headlined one of my carnivals. And if you're listening to this episode the week it airs, and in the Cleveland area, you can catch him headlining the BZ Douglas Carnival once again on Friday, September 21st at my house. You know, it's a special kind of life achievement to book one of your musical heroes for a show. The fact that this is the third time I've gotten to do it has not diminished the wow feeling I get. And be sure to visit CurtisEller.com to hear more of his music and find out when he's coming through your neck of the woods. And now, let's listen to the songs and stories of Curtis Eller. Well, step back from that turnstile, Matthew, Mark, and Paul. My heart is brittle as a spider, and these ain't my wings at all. And you know, you're never gonna hide that scar. So you were born in Detroit, and your father ran the Hiller Old Time Circus. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He was really a gym teacher in the Hiller School District in uh, suburban Detroit. Yeah, and he started teaching the kids in his gym class how to juggle and ride unicycles and you know do back flips and stuff like that. And eventually, some of them got really good at it, and he started a, a local circus you know, in suburban Detroit, and uh, it was mostly acrobatics and some trapeze and wire walking and unicycling. It wasn't like animals or anything of that nature. You know, it's more sort of classic 50s American acrobatic circus. It ran for a few years when I was a little kid, and it was kind of a nice thing because, you know, my dad got known as the guy who was passing on these circus skills to a, a you know a younger generation of people so you know he knew a lot of the big time circus people so when Ringling Brothers would come through you know we'd get to talk to those people and stuff, go backstage and how did he know uh people from the the bigger circuses well my dad was he's kind of an obsessive character you know whatever strikes his interest he goes full out on it for you know, one time, and he got, I think he came to it through, like, when he was a kid, he wanted to be, like, a strong man, like a bodybuilder and all that, and I think he saw these, like, circus performers as being people in peak physical condition or something, and he just got obsessed with it, and, uh, you know, he would he would write to them, I know that he went down to Sarasota, Florida, which is where, um, 
you know, the, the Ringling Brothers and other circuses would spend their off-season. They would live there, and, like, a lot of retired circus performers lived there. And so my dad went down, and he sought out the Carl and Herman Melinda from the from the Great Melinda's wire-walking troupe. And I know he, he knew them, and, you know, I have a couple of books that he has that are signed by them. Like, in fact, there's a book called The, the Pictorial History of the American Circus, which is where I got my band name from. And it's signed, it's signed Best Regards from Herman Melinda. And, uh, and I remember he knew this uh, juggling and magic duo, uh, Romig and Rooney, that lived in Detroit. And he, you know, we were always hanging out in Romig's magic shop, you know, it's where, like, I got all my juggling equipment as a kid. And, but, you know, the circus stuff gave me a real early interest and uh, appreciation for sort of just physical performance, which, you know, so, like, all of my favorite musicians, too, are, you know, people like, you know, Iggy Pop and, and Mick Jagger and Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley, these guys who were great musicians, but they also had a very physical stage show, you know, and moves. And like all the silent film guys. And then, so he gave me that. And then he also was a rockabilly guitar player and a bluegrass banjo player. And one day he saw me staring at his banjo and he was like, while he was playing, and he said, You want to learn to play the banjo? And I was like, yeah. I was probably 12 at the time, something like that. And uh, so he bought me my first banjo when I was in junior high. And, you know, just my thing i love it <laughs> what did you uh occupy like did you have any like you know looking back and and before you made a, a shift to like you are you're being you're working as a musician what were some of the like the the jobs or the way station jobs you you might have had in between yeah i i kind of sucked at everything else that i tried um i mean i had you know the usual sort of you know crap jobs, you know, growing up, and I never graduated college, but, because I was always distracted, I was always in a band, or writing, I mean, the first thing I ever wrote, we, there was a theater troupe that I was involved with at Michigan State University in Lansing, and we wrote a, a musical about William Howard Taft, <laughs> and then after that, I joined that band. So, you know, I always had day jobs and stuff. I, I met my wife. We both worked at a music store in Lansing called Elderly Instruments. And, and then after we moved to New York City, I had, uh, you know, just string like bookstore jobs and, and whatnot. But it was always just to get a little bit of money. I never cared about anything. But What music, prompted you know? the, the move to New York? Well, I just, I love New York, and I always wanted to live there. And we were living in North Carolina at the time, and uh, and my wife, Jamie, got into art school in New York City. And we're like, that's our ticket. We're going. And so we spent, you know, 16 years in the city before we finally moved south. I'd like to go ahead and take a break and play uh, Sugar in My Coffin, which is the first song I remember seeing you at the Highline Ballroom, and uh, we'll go ahead and play that, and we'll step right back here with Curtis Eller. 
Did that work out? You moving to North Carolina, was that, you said you had gone, did you go from Lansing to North Carolina to New York? Or Lan- I, in the... Yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up in Detroit, and then I was in a band in Lansing, 
And then we all moved down to North Carolina in 91, I think. Um, and I was sort of the musical director of a theater troupe, and my wife was the made all the posters and sets and t-shirts and stuff, all the artistic part. But we were only down for a couple of years, and then we went to New York City. And, and was that, you know, um, I, when you came to New York City, had you, do you feel like you had what is, uh, I, I guess what I would know and people would see right now as like your act, or did that develop after you came to New York? I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was in, like, I liked the theater stuff I was doing down here, but, the, you know, the, I was just, had no idea. I was too shy to sing my own songs or anything. And I moved to New York and took a couple of years of not really doing much of anything. And I even sort of drifted away from banjo for a while. I was trying to play electric guitar in a, in a rock and roll band down in the South. And I sucked at it. <laughs> it's not, not right. You know, when I moved to New York, I was like, no more backing bands, no more theater, no more electric guitar, just banjo and and singing. What was and, your uh, first move? Was it going into open mics or finding jams or just connecting with people you knew prior to moving here? I just I became a regular at the Sidewalk Cafe open mic night, uh, anti folk thing. And it was great because, you know, there were great songwriters, bad ones too, but as you know, New York really makes you decide who you are and why you are what you are. You know, you have to decide, I'm going to be the guy that does this one thing. I have to be better. It makes you specialize. It makes you, you know, focus. You know, you know that's what New York's always done. I think for people is you come from some random town that doesn't have. You know, what are you going to do in these towns? You know, I mean, it's like, well, there are some jobs, and but there's, I don't know, just you come from some boring place and you go to New York and you can, like, reset. You can go, I'm somebody else now, and I don't know. I personally, I was just not good at what I do and so I moved to New York and was like this is it you know so uh sugar in my coffin that one stands out for me as uh you know you were playing at the Highland Ballroom you're standing on a stool you're swinging kicks your leg goes over your banjo while you play it sometime and then you were doing twirls around the audience um that performance style is that's something you had seen someone else do or you organically just started doing that? What was the first time you put that sort of physicality into your live performances? I, I like to move. And, you know, like when I first started as a musician, it was kind of in the, you know, the grunge days, I guess you'd call it. You know, and I was living in Chapel Hill at the time, which is like ground zero for like, it was going to be the next Seattle. So it was like shoegazer bands, I call it. And there was this whole thing at that time in the early 90s of like, don't wear anything that you wouldn't wear on the street and don't engage with the audience and don't appear 
in any way like you're trying to put on a show. Don't you know what I mean? It was like this whole we're just guys, you know, and I just hated it. <laughs> I just the the sort of bullshit sincerity of it. You're on stage. You four people are on stage. Nobody else is. So like right there, it's artificial. So I always just felt like you have to earn the stage, you know, and the best way to earn the stage is to use it. You know, like true rock and roll, like all the best, you know, the stuff that got it started, Eddie Cochran and, and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and like all these guys, they didn't like stand still and look like shit on stage, you know what I mean? They like, they found a way to look cool and they found a way to move. I mean, if you ever seen like film of, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis lighting his piano on fire and, you know, like standing on the top of the piano and playing with his feet and stuff. Just, I love that. I love it. One, two, one, two, three, four. This is the heart, the heart baby found. Down by the river, in that frozen ground Like a cold war fever, it won't cool down Take a look at my money, take a look at this town Take a look at that Cadillac, stalled out on the railroad track Boom, boom, click, click, I'm taking my money back Gonna dance all night Take a look at those hands In the baptismal pool That dirty water Rolling on the deep school Hey mama simmer down These people don't mess around Hey, put the word out This is my last night in town Ow! Don't you know they got so long If they catch you in that they gonna pull you under air Here come that heart attack I can feel the friction Wait. This is the heart that forgave Richard Nixon Well, 
to know These are the hands that sign the pardon Another heart attack Alone in the garden land Here they come to overturn that conviction This is the heart that forgave Richard Nixon Ow! This is the heart that forgave Richard Nixon This is, this is, this is the heart lost. You're, you're one of the artists who I tell everyone, I'm like, you listen to them. Here's the, you know, I'll share like a track. I'm like, that's great. But if he's coming in town to see him live, you have to come see that. And, and one of the, the big reasons for that is it seems very important to you that your audience know the story behind your songs. You know, the, the biggest example would be something like Saving, Save Me Joe Lewis. Right, with a long story, you know. I'm putting out a lot, a live album later uh, next year. We recorded our UK tour, and I made sure to capture a couple of versions of that. But there's something special about somebody telling you a story in the room. Like, I don't know, I, I feel like there's every time you do a show, it's like, it's like I'm here, and you're here, and all these other people are here. And it probably will never happen again that this exact group of people is in this room together. And so the same songs can take on a whole new thing. You know what I mean? It's like you have your stories about your life that you tell. And those stories are different when you tell them to different people, right? And it's the same thing with a performance. Like I think too many people think of a performance like giving a speech. You have a thing that you've prepared, and you stand up, and you deliver your speech, and the audience goes, oh, yes, that's very nice, thank you. But the best performers think of a performance as a conversation, you know, and they ask questions of the audience, and they answer questions from the audience, and they, they you know, I, I like to get to know people, you know, like, why are we in the room together? And I always say about, like I, like, I think of the songs as, like, scripts, and I think of myself as an actor, and you can do two things with a script and an actor. One, you could make a movie, and I think of, and I think of the record as being, like, movies. You know what I mean? You take that script, and as an actor, you do close-ups, and you have sets, and costume design, and, and editing, and stuff like that. But then the other thing that a script and an actor can do is do a play. And that's what I think of a live show as. It's like, I've got my script, and I'm in the room with the people, and, you know, it's like, so I kind of feel like it's not that different than what an actor does, you know? And you've said before that you, in, um, in both instances, you try to find the funniest way to deliver tragic material. And um, I guess what I'd ask, why, why do you like to play in the tragic and then get into, you've got a lot of recurring themes uh, that you, you like to go through. You know, there's obviously this, the circus, the Civil War comes up a lot, silent films, um, boxers, and of course, you know, Buster Keaton and Elvis are probably the two biggest yeah. characters besides Abraham Lincoln. Richard Nixon. <laughs> so what is it about the, 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 the tragic and the dark that you like to bring to the light? It's just very interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, 
you know, as a performer, like, it sounds really pretentious, but maybe, like, what you're trying to do is, like, shine a light on something, and if it's already lit out, it's already bright, the light doesn't really mean much, you know? If you pick something dark, then the light really means something. <laughs> well, I really feel, I feel like, you know, you play in in historical places and yeah. with historical characters, but there was something about them that really resonated with me because I know I saw you, it was like, a, you know, I've always been very politically minded. It was like the end of the Bush years and the beginning of the uh, the Obama years or whatever, but I was still just yeah. in that, like, what is happening? And I remember being very stirred up by your music and it wasn't, there wasn't anything in, in the lyrics that's like on the nose about the times we live in, but there's something that immediately you can feel it analogous. The big turning moment for me was right about the time the Iraq war was starting. It was about sugar in my coffin, actually. This is, uh, you'll probably find it somewhat interesting. I, there was this book published in the sixties called the Vietnam songbook. And it was, um, a collection of protest songs from around the world and it was put together by the, the Sing Out magazine people. And and in 2003 or four, something around there, um, they staged this book at Joe's Pub. Um, this uh, Don Fleming, I don't know if you know him, he's like a record producer and he manages uh, you know, historical recording archives and, and stuff. But he put on the show where they got some of the original people that sang the songs in the 60s, Barbara Dane and um, um, just a host of, you know, First generation sort of Vietnam protest singers and, and Vietnam vets, and then they also wanted to bring in like a, a younger generation of politically minded people to to sing the songs from it. And Pete Seeger, uh, who wrote this amazing song "Waist Deep in the Big Muddy," was at the time too sick to attend. He was, you know, like. 90 at the time or something. And uh, he wasn't going to be able to attend. And because I think I just happened to be the only banjo player that they knew <laughs> in New York. So I got the gig in the backup band as the banjo player. And then I got to sing Pete's song. And learning that song, which was about a guy... I mean, you should like find the song. It's It's about... This guy who's on maneuvers uh, prior to World War II, and there's this tragedy where they get stuck in a in a river and drown. And uh, but it, the whole time you're singing it, you're realizing that it's it's also about Korea and it's also about Vietnam and it's and at the time I was singing it, it was about Iraq and Afghanistan and. I sang it for years, and it's like, someday this song is going to be obsolete, and it never happened. The song is always current. And I think, this is so great. It's so true. And then last minute, Pete Seeger ended up making the show. 
So I got to sing it for him, which is like an all-time thrill of my life. Back in 1942, I was a member of a good platoon Where we was on maneuvers in Louisiana One night by the light of the moon Where the captain said to fall the river And that's how it all begun Well, the sergeant said, Are you sure this is the best way back to the base? Well, sergeant, go on out. About a mile above this place It'll be a little soggy But just keep slogging Or we'll soon be on dry ground And we were waist deep in the big muddy When the big fool said to push on Well, the sergeant said So with all this equipment No man will be able to swim don't be a nervous Nelly That's what the captain said to him Well, all we need is just a little determination Follow me, I will lead on And we was neck deep in the big muddy When the big fool said to push on
he came out on stage, and in addition to being just an electrifying presence in the room, he comes out to the microphone and he says, I'm going to sing the greatest anti-war, anti-hate song ever written, and I'll need your help singing it. And he did Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And this jaded New York audience, like on the brink of war, was in tears. It was like one of the most beautiful and joyful things. So like what you're singing about is not always really what you're singing about, you know? <laughs> um, and so I think I... And Pete Seeger also made like an art out of the sing-along. If you can get people to sing with you, you're sharing something real, you know? And so that's my guy. You're really good at getting people to sing along with you. And one of my... I w- I was trying to write up, I, I, I don't know if I, me- I mentioned to you a while back, it's like, oh, I'm going to write up this blog post about you and just sort of like a general review. And I, I have been working on it for a while, and then I had a database failure on my website, and it just ate it. And I never got the energy to muster it all back up. But one of the things I, when I was like putting together a piece was about how you can win over a room, and a great example of that online is you're playing like a small house show in... Oh, well, I, I know I'll screw up the country, like Sweden or Denmark or something. And, um, you know, you're asking them at the beginning, like, do you understand me? And they, <laughs> they were they, their, their language is just slightly off from us or whatever. And they were seem like they're from a colder culture. There's more. They're just more like, yes, we are enjoying Curtis Eller. We yeah. have good po- <laughs> and we have good posture and we are paying close attention <laughs> But you kind of you had to melt them down in that in that, and it's a great example of how you do that. You get getting people to sing along, and yeah. uh, especially with a song like "Saving Joe, Save Me, Joe Lewis," which um, I may as well just play now so I can stop talking about it. Um, but or is that one um, by the way that you think you'll bring out for Carnival, or do you do you usually gauge if that's the right room for it, or are you tired of? bringing that song out what the audience is looking for you know lately i've been playing a lot with this sort of explosive rock and roll lineup so i haven't done it a lot recently but it's really to me it's a really special song because there's something about the i heard that story you know the short version of the story as i originally heard it was in north carolina in the 30s, they were switching from the electric chair to the gas chamber, and they wanted to find out if it was painful or inhumane or, or cruel. So they, they got a guy, and they waited, put him in, and they waited to see what his last words would be. And back in the 30s, Joe Lewis, of course, was a great hero to the African-American community, and a hero to everyone, really, but... You know, if you were a young black kid, he was Superman, you know what I mean? He was the greatest. But the guy that they, you know, executed was, you know, unsurprisingly, I suppose, a, a black guy. And his last words, supposedly, were not, you know, Jesus or Mother or Please Don't or anything like that. Supposedly his last words were, Save me, Joe Lewis, save me. And I, I don't know where I read this story. Someone in England once came up to me after a show and said, you should write a song about Joe Lewis. I was like, yeah, I should write a song about Joe Lewis. He's from Detroit. 
And so I started reading about Joe Lewis, and I found that story somewhere. I don't remember where. I was like, that is awesome. Because, again, we're talking about you're not singing about what you're singing about. Like, that song, everyone says, oh, you have a great song about Joe Lewis. But the song is not about Joe Lewis at all. It's from the point of view of, and it's entirely about, the guy being put to death, you know? Save me, Joe Lewis, the last words I'll ever say. Here's hoping things get better After I'm gone away If I was there with you I would drink myself blind But these hard times could be here all day And Mr. Roosevelt in the White House Can deliver no comfort down here And I know that it's only a paper moon But it's the last hope Fight back this fear I said, save me Joe Lewis Save me The last words that I'll ever say Let the gas chamber take 
you know, you say like you're singing about things, but you're not singing about things. My level of disturbance in politics, and it actually, it some of my songs are directly about it, but I, none of the lyrics are on the nose. It's very open, but I wrote them thinking about very specific things that were happening politically uh, in like the Bush years. And yeah. what scared me in those years, it, the continuity is that the the executive branch just continues to get power. And I, I really like that you take presidents down a notch. Yeah. I mean, it's just we've lived for so many times. Anybody that's president is just by virtue of being qualified for that job, a compromised and probably awful person. You know, um, like you couldn't achieve that level of power in his culture without being suspect in my eyes, no matter who you are, even the best of them. And and presidents are really nice for uh, for as a writer because you say the name of one of them, it comes with baggage about what people think they know about them. It comes with an automatic time period, so you just say Richard Nixon, and you automatically have a cast of characters and the costume design and the sets. Nineteen sixty-eight, like it's all there. You just say one person's name. And you got the whole stage is set. You know what I mean? Um, you don't have to explain anything to anybody, and then you can just let your events unfold on that set. And that's kind of how I look at presidents. You know, you say Abraham Lincoln. It's 1864. The nation is at war. You know, it's just you don't you don't need to. It just fills in all the gaps instantaneously for people. And then you can do weird things with it, you know, put the wrong people in there with them and stuff. Treat them, treat them, treat them poorly. <laughs> You've got a, another theme I pick up is, um, or there's something I love about another song I wanted to play off of the new album, which is Old Time Religion. And yeah. I love that you that's that's the title of an old gospel. And yeah. You took it and you basically made what I, I've said to people uh, is a, it's an atheist gospel song. Yeah, that's what it was intended to be. I, I thought I listened to a lot of gospel records. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I, I, I'm not what you call a believing man, but I grew up in a religious family, and and I, I love gospel music. I love the singing and the drive of it, I feel like it's um, joyful and welcoming because you, you're supposed to sing with them, you well, know? To me, that's the sort of, that's that's the, I mean, something like the music, the gospel music, that's one of those pieces where that's how religion is propagated is because there's just, you know, the grassroots level of religion. It's people that are like, well, yeah, whatever, all that stuff you might, think critically about with religion with but i just like singing my songs on sunday or right. it's the community just, thing that that binds you know i or that i feel like those are like the that's the icing that keeps people from ignoring what's in the cake right yeah i i always sort of long for it's like when i listen to gospel i'm like oh my god i if I could believe whatever it is you're believing that makes you sound like that, I want to 
And then I started thinking, well, you know, like, what is gospel? They say it's the sharing the good news, as they say. And like for me, the the good news is that I don't I don't need God. I'm fine with the world as it is, you know. And and I want to like I want to write like a joyful driving gospel song for those who do not believe. <laughs> and for, you know, that's the good news, you know what I mean? It's not it's not a bad thing to say that you don't like so many people like when you say you don't that you're you know, you're an atheist or you're agnostic or whatever these words are, humanist. When you say that, they think it means you're like nihilistic and you don't believe anything and that it all just leads to death I was raised Catholic, and it ultimately just came down to, as I started to really con- take in the world and learn more, it became t- the, the the anthropomorphized concept of God became ridiculous and small. Like I was right. very much like this is this is all amazing, or like if you look at science and actual like how they're explaining the universe. If you're going to believe in a deity that created it, that ex- explaining how it was actually done in the ma- massive, intricate, random, chaotic way that it happened over such a long... That's so much more of a celebration of the creative force than to say, no, no, it was this child story. Wait, I, it's just yeah, not... It's, it's I mean, crazy, and it's right? just... You know, and the, the thing people have rubbed wrong with atheists is like, you know, if anyone you know, hears me say that and they believe I just completely, you know, call them like, you know, oh, you're listening to children's stories and things like that. And I'm, I'm just sorry that, you know, it's, it's, it's such a touchy thing sometimes just be like, well, it's, it's hard for me not to look at it that way. And, right. uh, and, yeah, I, and I try to approach it with humor too, you know, like yeah. if you can make a laugh when you're talking about it, then they're already smiling. So then, you know what I mean? Like we're already friends you know? When I found, I really found that my, or what, what I would get out of like church or what maybe, maybe some people get out of it and we're, um, that, that role of, you know, finding community and connecting with them and celebrating something. It, 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 it is for me, it has been the open mics and I've had a couple of conversations with friends where I just said, you know, this is church. This is a great idea for church. Instead of everyone congregates once a week and one person stands up and expounds on how they think everything should be based off of whatever source. Whereas everyone gets together once a week and then everyone gets up and does, you know, and we all take turns listening to each other and that's church. And it's, we're worshiping, the creative force that's just flowing through every one of us. And that's how Mike's became a church for me in terms of like, I need to go there literally for that communion. Yeah, it is. It's communion. It's community. It's connecting with people around you. It's listening to ideas. It's giving ideas. It's good. I was, you know, when I argue with people about it, one of the things I always, I mean, I say this a lot, but when people question, they say, well, do you really think this is all there is? And I would say, how can this not be enough for you? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, what more you do know, you need? Like, ten things, yeah, you know, ten things about the universe and like 
five things about your neighbor, that's, that is enough for like an eternity right there. You know what I mean? Like that's amazing enough for me and it's joyful. And that's what I was trying to get out with that song. Like, the world is good enough for me. I don't need the, I don't need the extras.
you have you definitely seem to in some of your interviews have an alienation and, and a welcome distance from what I would consider like the music establishment. Um, and I'm just wondering if that is a posture you started out with, or is it a reaction to how you've been, how you've dealt with it? I don't know. I, I never have had any success, you know what I mean, really? Um, and yet I've been able to earn a living totally outside the music business. I mean, if there's like a record label or a manager or a booking agent or anything like that, like they've rejected me at some point. And I, I don't know. I mean, I could be totally delusional, but it seems like people like the show. You know, they keep coming back. But how, so you've always been independent, and how have you been navigating these waters? Just um, do you manage everything on your own in terms of booking, or do you have some help? Yeah, done all the booking, all the promotion all of the travel arrangements, all of the, you know, production, like every, yeah, basically all of it, you know. <laughs> um, the only thing I don't do is play the bass and the drums. <laughs> I don't know, I feel, you know, like I, like everybody, you know what I mean, I've been doing it so long, and I feel like, well, why does anybody, you know, why have I not? I get bummed out a lot, you know. Like, why, why can't I get anywhere? You know, with the the real music business, but I can't do anything about it. But keep going, and I feel like really lucky. And for whatever reason, enough people keep coming back. And it's the only reason I said if you've got thousand, what was the rule? I forget. They said if you have a thousand true fans, like a thousand people somewhere in the world who really genuinely care about what you do, then you can make it. Because if, if you have a thousand people every year who like buy your record and come to your show and stuff like that, then that's really, that's really enough to... You're a subsistence musician. <laughs> you know, I can't complain because I don't have any other job and I haven't since 2001. So. Well, it's got to help to have, have your wife be able to produce such great original artwork. That's amazing. I mean, she, like I, I, my records and stuff look much better than I deserve because of her. <laughs> and there's, it's such a perfectly, a perfect marriage. I think, I think they look exactly the way the music sounds. You, know? you can find Curtis Eller's tour info and everything else you'd need to keep up with him at Curtis Eller.com. Uh, you're also very prolific on social media I, I don't know a lot of artists who are as responsive as you are on twitter and facebook you're really c keeping your fan base you cultivate them well yeah i want to keep in touch because as i said they have, uh, have to do it all myself so the best way is to make sure that you know people know they can get to me <laughs> um i would uh want to know if there's um a track of yours that uh is a is a favorite that you love playing and uh, we haven't we haven't put out yet that you'd like to close out on um my current i mean you know it changes a lot i think probably my current sort of favorite might be uh busby berkeley funeral i do not have to worry because i know what's in store when the angels crowd around and cast their shadow on my door, a 
There will be no sorrow When they call the final dance I don't mind I made arrangements in advance I left instructions for my funeral with a camera crew that take me down to MGM. I don't know what to do. Tell these Hollywood angels the time has come to gather round. There'll be no sweeter sound. I want my Lena Dietrich singing Lily Marlene when they send me down to the front line. And if it's got to rain, I want. Gene Kelly dancing so I can rise above my fear. Hey, look, the gang's all here. Yes, Carmen Miranda to wash away my blue. Esther Williams drinking champagne by the swimming pool. Hey, that's Rudy Valley singing in their sweet bell tone. Somebody get on the phone and get me. Hop on marks up on a bandstand I need a Hollywood miracle A brand new show A Busby Berkeley funeral Don't you know yeah. I want a Busby Berkeley funeral Though these are blonde-haired angels see just how we Shining down on me in sweet black and white. Crank up the camera and let Sam go when no. Cool. 